Welcome to JAT Chat, presented by the Journal of Athletic Training, the official journal of the National Athletic Trainers Association. I'm Dr. Shelby Baez, an assistant professor in the Department of Exercise and Sports Science at UNC Chapel Hill, and the co-host of JAT Chat with Dr. Kara Radzak. Today, I have the pleasure of being joined by Dr. Ryan McCann, who is an associate professor in the Master's of Science and Athletic Training program at Old Dominion University. Dr. McCann is the lead author of Assessments Used by Athletic Trainers to Decide Return to Activity in Patients with Ankle Sprain. Ryan, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Shelby. Nice to be here. All right. So let's go ahead and start with a a very broad question for our listeners. Uh, What do we know about clinical outcomes after ankle sprain uh, in helping with that decision to return to sport? Well, first and foremost, and I, I don't think it's any surprise to people listening, is that Ankle sprains are really associated with a lot of different impairments, um, and that's very well established. We know that there's pain, there's swelling, there's problems with range of motion, laxity, strength, balance, and we know that impairment profile is very heterogeneous. So, you know, different patients present with different impairments. Um, but what we've seen recently in a lot of the literature is that patients with ankle sprains very often are reaching that return to activity time point before these impairments are resolved. So these impairments are persisting once they've re-entered some of that high-risk activity, whether it's sports or or some other uh, type of functional activity. Um, In some of the more recent studies, we've also seen that some of these impairments might increase their risk for developing uh, recurrent ankle sprains or chronic ankle instability. And if we look at the chronic ankle instability literature, we can see that a lot of people with CAI have these impairments ongoing for months or even years. Yeah, so when thinking about this, uh, the ankle sprain population, we see them going back to sport even prior to these impairments being resolved. And that seems a little counterproductive, I think, as we we think about being clinicians, wanting to make sure our patients are, are ready to go. Um, so what, what prompted the decision to want to explore athletic trainers' methods and trying to make sense of some of these impairments and determining when a patient's ready to return to activity uh, following an ankle sprain? Yeah, a lot of the, you know, our justification for doing a study like this was sort of rooted in the things that I just described. You know, we've seen in some of these previous studies that the patients with ankle sprains who are reaching return to activity with residual impairments are still often being cared for by an athletic trainer or some other um, medical professional. So it really made us think, what are the athletic trainers actually doing with their patients Um, prior to and after return to activity. Um, So we really wanted to start analyzing the AT practices. Um, So certainly we could look at things like, you know, the rehabilitation plans. And I think there's plenty of work to be done in that area. But as sort of a jumping off point, we wanted to ask first and foremost, are athletic trainers consistently evaluating impairments in these patients before they reach that time of return to activity? And if they're not, maybe that's a potential contributing factor for why these impairments remain unaddressed and persist for as long as they do. And can you just give us some insight into your approach in in starting to answer that question? What was the methodology? What type of uh, study did you do to, to try and answer that, that question? Sure. Well, uh, we actually started with a preliminary um, uh, study that you know, we're not talking about that one specifically, but it was um, a qualitative research study that we did um, a year or two before this this larger survey study. So we did some interviews with some clinically practicing athletic trainers and just did some open-ended 
uh, interview questions to get an idea of what it is they're doing. And that really sort of helped frame um, some of the questions that we ultimately put into this survey. And so this survey um, was really designed um, to be sent out to clinically practicing athletic trainers. Um, we ultimately went through uh, the NATA um, in order to do so. That allowed us to cast a really wide net. Um, we initially sent this survey to 10,000 clinically practicing athletic trainers. Um, and ultimately, um, after we, we looked through all the responses and um, the inclusion and exclusion criteria, we ultimately wound up with 541 responses from athletic trainers. So we think we wound up with a pretty good sample um, to, to answer these questions. Yeah, I think I read it was like about an 85% response rate. Yeah, very good. For any, yeah, in terms of people who actually, you know, opened the, the survey and started uh, uh, answering questions, we got about an 85% response rate. So very good. Yeah, so if any of our listeners are, are, are receive any future uh, requests for surveys, so please uh, complete those along the way because it really helps us develop our own research moving forward. Um, so along along the lines of talking about you had this qualitative study first that helped to inform uh, some of the questions specifically on the quantitative piece. Can you just give some insight into what was included on this quantitative survey to help sure. make sense of what athletic trainers are using? Yeah, the first thing we, we really wanted to know was the background of the ATs. Um, so we really dove into some uh, demographic questions, you know, things like age and gender were, were important in there. But we also really wanted to know what was the education level of the ATs who were responding, you know, whether it was the degrees that they've earned or the programs that they've completed. We wanted to know how much clinical experience they have. We wanted to know what clinical practice setting they were currently in. Um, how many uh, ankle sprain patients do they see within a given year? You know, one of our exclusion criteria or inclusion criteria, I should say, was that they had to treat at least one ankle sprain patient within the previous year. But, you know, we wanted to know, was it just one or were they treating 10, 20 every single year? Um, and then one of the other key pieces we wanted to know was what is their familiarity with um, these ROAST guidelines, which we haven't really talked about yet. Um, so just to kind of clarify, these ROAST guidelines uh, stand for Rehabilitation-Oriented Assessments. And this is sort of a, a consensus guideline that was put together by the International Ankle Consortium, which is a collection of ankle researchers and clinicians from across the world um, who really put together uh, these recommendations for how we should go about evaluating ankle sprains. So after we got past the demographic questions, we really wanted to ask about these outcome domains that were within the ROAST guidelines. So just generally, you know, were you evaluating pain, swelling, range of motion, orthokinematics, strength, balance, gait, physical activity level, um, ankle-specific patient-reported outcomes? Um, and then once we got past that question, we wanted to know if you actually assess a given outcome domain, what are the specific assessment techniques that you're using? So, for example, if you say that you're evaluating ankle range of motion, okay, great. Are you using goniometry? Are you using weight-bearing lunge test? Just a visual inspection? Something else entirely? Um, that's really where we took uh, the final questions there. So, it really sounds like a comprehensive survey to give insight into are people using these ROAST guidelines? And then if they aren't, what are they using uh, to yeah, help? Go ahead. No, I was going to say, yeah, we tried to make it as comprehensive. Of course, I'm sure you know that anytime you get through um, one of these surveys or any study, really, it, it brings up more questions than, than answers. <laughs> Definitely. 
So what did you all find? What what were the what's, what was the results of the, the survey? Yeah, so to sort of sum it up, and we, there are a lot of results. Um, for those out there who will actually go and read the paper, you'll you'll realize there's a lot of uh, appendices in there. We really tried to present as much of the data from the survey as we possibly could. Um, so there's a lot to sift through, but I'll, I'll try to sum it up as best I can. Um, to start with some of the, uh, the outcome domains, right? So just overall pain, swelling, range of motion, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we actually saw that most of those domains were assessed by a high percentage of athletic trainers before these patients reached return to activity. If we looked at things like pain and range of motion, we saw that over 90% of ATs were assessing these things. Um, we look at some of the other outcomes, swelling, strength, balance, gait, it was more like 75 to 90%. Still very high, but maybe some room for improvement. Um, the ones that were a little more alarming, things like arthrokinematics, physical activity level, and ankle-specific patient-reported outcomes, we saw that no more than 35% of ATs were assessing those outcome domains in, in patients. Um, when we look beyond the outcome domains into the specific assessments, um, we wanted to know about whether they're using the, the recommended ROAST guidelines or if they're using something else um, entirely. Um, we saw things like um, swelling and range of motion were mostly done by visual inspection, um, which we know have limitations because there's no quantification of visual inspection and there's some major issues with reliability of that assessment. Um, similarly with strength, uh, we saw that over 95% of athletic trainers assessing strength relied on manual muscle tests, which we know also has some, some limitations because it's not quantification, even though you can get that rating scale, um, the use of things like handheld dynamometry, where we can actually get quantification, was used by a much lower uh, percentage. I think uh, handheld dynamometry was less than 5% of athletic trainers. So I think there's some limitations maybe in um, our ability to quantify some of the outcomes that are even being assessed. So one of the things that I, I think I'm was interesting to to identify was this, I guess, lack of assessment of arthrokinematics, physical activity levels, and patient-reported outcomes prior to, to clearance. Can we get some insight as to maybe why we see this in our athletic training uh, facilities and our athletic training populations that we, we aren't assessing those particular outcomes? We did actually do some follow-up assessment uh, questions with this. Um, and actually, the, the paper that we're discussing has a companion paper that's also been accepted JAT. I don't, I don't know how the publication's working, if they're coming out together or if one's going to be delayed. But when we look at um, some of the barriers and facilitators for using these ROAST guidelines, a lot of the respondents said that it was a lack of knowledge or previous education, and that's why they didn't use thing, the, some of these assessments. So things like arthrokinematics. A lot of them didn't know that they were supposed to be assessing it or they didn't know how to go about assessing it. Same thing with patient reported outcomes. They weren't familiar with some of the ankle specific assessments. They weren't really comfortable using them or they didn't feel like it was feasible. Maybe it was a time related issue for a lot of them. Um, and to be honest, that's not a major surprise considering we've seen previous literature very recently that shows that a lot of athletic trainers do not use patient reported outcomes. So. Our findings there actually align pretty well with what we we thought we already knew. 
And as a, a psych researcher, it kind of breaks my heart just a little bit that the PROs aren't being included. Uh, but I, I, but it sounds like you've identified a couple of barriers uh, as to why athletic trainers aren't necessarily using these tools and techniques in, in their practice. Um, what were some of the facilitators, though, for athletic trainers to use orthokinematics or PROs or, or assess physical activity levels? Sure. Uh, we looked closely at the demographic characteristics. Um, we sort of broke it out um, by by the varying levels there. Um, and we found a, quite a bit of variation, but to sort of sum it all up, we found a few demographics that really helped facilitate. Uh, one was a, a higher age or experience level. So athletic trainers generally who are older had more time under their belt, they were more likely to use some of these uh, roast assessment techniques. Uh, we also found athletic trainers with higher levels of education. So whether that was based on the degree that they earned or the program they completed, more education led to a greater likelihood of using these outcomes. Um, it seemed that athletic trainers in non-traditional settings also were more likely to. So whether it was industrial, rehab clinics, um, MD practices, um, that seemed to facilitate as well. Probably thinking that might be related to the amount of time they have with a given patient. Considering traditional settings like secondary schools and colleges, you might be sort of bombarded by the number of patients that you have, and you might not have a ton of time to actually do a comprehensive assessment where some of these non-traditional settings might actually allow for that. Um, and then the last demographic characteristic that was uh, fairly consistently um, a facilitator was their familiarity with the ROAST guidelines to begin with. So if you had read the paper, or if you had known something about it beforehand, you were more likely to actually use it. So that actually was not a very big surprise. Now, for those who uh, used ROAST guidelines, um, the specific assessments within there, a lot of them said that um, their previous knowledge or previous education was a facilitator. Um, also, a lot of them said that the accessibility or availability of some of these outcomes was really uh, favorable. Um, one of the nice things about the ROAST guidelines is that most of the assessments in there don't require a lot of expensive equipment, don't require a lot of space. They can be done uh, uh, fairly simply. The only one that really has a major expense associated with it is the handheld dynamometry. Hopefully this uh, podcast can uh, provide an, another layer of education and encourage uh, athletic so. trainers to pick up the roast guidelines if they haven't picked it up just yet. So Ryan, what's, what's the next step here in as it relates to future research or clinical practice in this space? Where do we go from here? Sure. I think there's a, a ton of directions we can go with this. Um, in terms of research, I think we need to continue looking at the practice habits of athletic trainers. Um, we have some preliminary studies um, that are in review at other publications. Um, you know, we've seen through some of our uh, preliminary research that, you know, uh, use of immobilization might be beneficial to preventing recurrent ankle sprains. Um, we've done some comparisons looking at time loss versus non-time loss ankle sprains. We've seen that, you know, patients that actually take some time away from the injury and are not immediately um, returning to activity, they might have some better long-term outcomes. Even if those ankle sprains are more severe, they tend to result in better outcomes. So there's some really interesting stuff that we'll have coming out in the future. Um, other than that, though, I think we need to look at, you know, some of the, the care and rehabilitation protocols that athletic trainers are using. What specific items are in there? Are you using balance training? Are you using manual therapies like joint mobilizations? 
Um, and then sort of as a follow-up to the study we're discussing is criteria-based return to activity decisions. You know, we, we have an idea now of what assessment techniques athletic trainers are using. We still don't have any idea how they're interpreting them. Right. So if you take a balance assessment like the star excursion balance test, what, what's a score that constitutes readiness for return to activity? We really don't know what athletic trainers are using to determine that. So that needs to be um, uh, investigated in the future. Um, I'd say for clinical, um, you know, one of the, the facilitators that we consistently saw was the, the previous knowledge or education um, for um, for using these uh, ROAST guidelines. So we certainly need to make sure that these assessment techniques are included within educational programs. Um, it's, it's important that, you know, students understand what these are and know how to use them when they come out um, and start their clinical practice. For those who are, who are currently practicing clinically, I definitely recommend, you know, conferences and workshops that, that go through these um, specific skills and, and that cover the contemporary literature. Um, but then even just keeping up with the, the current literature yourself, if you if you find these um, expert consensus recommendations, read them and then think about how you can factor them into your, your clinical practice. Again, we consistently saw that ATs who were just familiar with the ROAST guidelines were more likely to use it. Um, we, we know that there are some other barriers to using these ROAST, so things like time and cost are issues. We, we think there might be some ways to mitigate some of that. Um, we know there are modifications for some of the ROS. For example, patient reported outcomes. You could take something like the foot and ankle ability measure and you could use the quick fame, which is an abbreviated version of that. It's a, it's a, it's a time saver. Um, same thing with something like the SEBT. It can be whittled down to something like the anterior reach. It's a much shorter test to conduct, but it still gives you some valuable information about uh, dynamic balance. Um, we know that the, the one major cost associated with these is the handheld dynamometer, and you can get them for hundreds up to even $1,000. We know that's an issue for a lot of clinical sites, but there are other options we can use to quantify strength. Um, a crane scale or a hanging scale is a great option. It's really just a generic load cell you can pick up at any hardware store. Um, people use it to weigh suitcases or other items. Those things cost around $30 to $50, which you can set that up with some straps or some chains and you can make some strength assessments out of it. So it's it's very practical and we know that it's it's valid and it's reliable for assessing muscular strength. Well, thank you for that comprehensive assessment from a, a, a future direction from a research standpoint, but also just very clear, tangible pearls on from a clinical standpoint on what athletic trainers can do right now to start to uh, enhance their abilities to assess uh, return activity. Can you just provide us a take home point? What's the one thing that you want our listeners to get from your paper? Sure. I think I think between our paper and then you know, the, the research that's come out before it, we're starting to really realize that the comprehensive ankle sprain evaluation is really crucial to number one, detecting the impairments and then making sure that they're resolved before that return to activity timeframe. Um, Cause we know that they can contribute to, you know, recurrent ankle sprains and development of chronic ankle instability. So really uh, encourage athletic trainers to look at their assessment methods that they're using, see where they can be expanded or modified to, to more closely uh, meet those expert recommendations. And as a person who has chronic ankle instability, I really appreciate the work you're doing in this space. So thank you so much. 
And and Ryan, thank you so much for joining me today. Uh, And to our listeners, this article is available free of charge by the Journal of Athletic Training. I highly recommend everyone go and download this manuscript in a future issue of the Journal of Athletic Training. Again, thank you so much, and we'll see you next time. 